0: Welcome to The Dinner Party Download. This is your
1: icebreaker. All right, so how many hipsters does it take to screw in a light bulb? I don't know how many. It's like an obscure number. You've probably never heard of it. I am Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. And from APM, American Public Media, this is The Dinner Party Download. The culture show that helps you win your weekend dinner parties.
0: You just got a joke from filmmaker Jordan Boat Roberts. That'll help break the ice. Jordan directed the movie The Kings of Summer, which is in select theaters right now. Probably the hip theaters. Appropriately. Yeah. Later, we will speak with actor Liev Schreiber about his new Showtime series, Ray Donovan.
1: Also coming up, we seek Etiquette Answers from writer Corey Sika. Nice. And in a few minutes, brother and sister musical duo Wild Bell suggests tunes to play at your next dinner party.
0: Although, you know, maybe they're like the White Stripes and they're not actually brother and sister. You know they what I'm are saying?
1: actually brother and sister. Then why are they hosting a dinner
0: party together? It's just
1: a conceit for our show, man.
0: Okay, but Donnie and Marie are questionable.
1: Anyway, first, as at any dinner party, we start with small talk. <laughs>
0: All week long, you've been hearing these headlines.
2: The Army's Bradley Manning not guilty of aiding the enemy.
3: The Labor Department reports first time jobless claims last week fell to their lowest level since January of 2008.
4: Weiner facing new calls from his fellow Democrats to quit the race for New York mayor.
3: Now, for
0: something you might not have heard, we are speaking with Mara Eakin. She is a music editor at the Onions Culture Section, the AV Club. Mara, what story are you going to be talking about at dinner parties this weekend?
2: This weekend, especially with my baseball loving friends, I'll be talking about how the Giants are going to put a 3,000-square-foot organic garden behind behind the wall in center field...
5: What?
1: So for people who don't know baseball, this is the San Francisco Giants, which maybe explains the organic part of the garden. I guess a little bit. Why did they decide to do this?
2: They decided to do it, I think, for a number of reasons. One, they're hippies. Uh, (laughs) Two, probably because um, it seems like one of those things that they maybe got a grant for or something because President Obama announced the garden when they were at the White House on Monday. It seems like one of those Michelle Obama pet projects.
0: So this isn't just aesthetic. They're going to serve the produce from this garden.
2: You know, they said that they're going to sell it at the stands. But in the article that I was reading about it from the San Francisco Chronicle, it says that they're going to grow kale, strawberries, broccolini, citrus, huckleberries. Kale. And none of those things seem like things you could get on a hot dog. So
1: <laughs> This is why, because baseball is the least organic sport. Like that field, that bright green field yeah. that lives for months, they're obviously pouring fertilizer on that. <laughs> Even the baseball players aren't organic. They're, you know, with the steroid scandals. <laughs> oh, wh- no. Why do they feel like this is a good pairing? It sounds like a marketing ploy.
2: Um, I definitely think it's a more <laughs> boy.
0: I, d- I mean, definitely it's good PR for the Giants, but this is Michelle Obama's longtime cause, right? And isn't this what we all agree is good, is is less fast food and more local gardens?
2: Yeah, and would I sit there? Absolutely. I also think it's good for um, people who don't like baseball, but <laughs> might want to go to baseball games. Like, this is how you can convince your grandma to go or whatever. Oh,
1: that's
0: you know a good I mean? point. It's like more of a picnic than a sport.
2: Yeah, exactly. It's a high-end picnic.
0: Mara Eakin, thanks so much for the small talk. Of course. And now time for cocktails.
1: Once again, we tell you something that happened in history, then give you a fitting drink to serve along with it.
0: It's like history is a river rapid raging with cool, clear booze.
1: Wow. Wear your goggles. (laughs) First, the history part. Right around this time, back in 1911, one of the most infamous thefts in history took place in Paris.
0: Michelle Philippi tells the tale.
4: Stealing the Mona Lisa was supposed to be... Impossible. At least, that's what folks thought back in 1910. The head of French museums at the time said, quote, you might as well pretend that one could steal the towers of Notre Dame. Turns out he was kind of completely wrong, because a year later, an Italian named Vincenzo Perugia simply hid in a Louvre closet one night till everyone left. Then he grabbed the Mona Lisa off the wall, tucked it under his coat, and walked out. No one even called the cops until the next afternoon. It was a scandal. For two years, French cops went on a wild goose chase. At one point, they thought Pablo Picasso could be the thief. And they might never have found the painting. If Perugia hadn't tried to sell it to an Italian art dealer for 500,000 lira, he was arrested on the spot. The Italian courts didn't exactly throw the book at him, though. See, Perugia claimed he was avenging Italy's honor that the Mona Lisa should be back home in Italia, never mind that he tried to make half a million bucks from the theft. To Italians, he was a hero, which might explain why the guy who stole the Mona Lisa got just a seven-month sentence.
0: So, that was the history. Now, for the drink to serve with it, I'm speaking with Francesco Roccato at Bar Fusion in Florence, Italy, where the Mona Lisa was finally recovered. And, Francesco, what drink did that story inspire?
6: Hi, how are you, everyone? Uh, we're going to do a beautiful uh, cocktail today. It's called the Mona Lisa in Florence. Well, of course. <laughs> made with champagne. It's made with uh, Kermes which is a typical uh, red liqueur from Florence. Al Kermes? yes. It's been invented or brought to life by Caterina de' Medici, the queen of France from the Medici family. Interesting. And uh, also it's made with orange juice, champagne, orange juice and alchemist.
0: Sounds like alchemist, you know, magical.
6: It could be. There is some magic, yes. Uh, it was not easy to bring back the Mona Lisa from France to Italy. Uh, we needed some magic. So we, we hid Mr. Perugia into a closet in the Louvre Museum and then he was able to escape with the painting.
0: <laughs> kind of like a yeah. bunny rabbit in a magician's hat.
6: There you go. Wow. <laughs> and you know, the proportion for the cocktails are actually uh, two-tenths uh, alchemist uh, two-tenths uh, orange juice and then the is going to be champagne.
0: champagne. So it's actually mainly a champagne drink, sort yeah. of celebratory. Yes. Yeah. We're going to be celebrating art today.
6: We're celebrating, yes,
0: art. Speaking of which, actually, I was wondering, are you near the famous Uffizi Gallery there in
6: Florence? So, you know, actually, I live about uh, 20 yards from the Uffizi.
0: So let me ask you, would you put this drink in the Uffizi next to, say, about a Botticelli?
6: Why not? <laughs>
0: <laughs> It'd be hard to frame it, That's but right. why not? It sounds like a masterpiece.
6: It is. Just come over to the Florence and enjoy the cocktails. And if you're lucky, you might find the Mona Lisa because I might never went back to the Louvre.
0: Oh, really? (laughs) Is that the rumor that you kept the real one and sent a fake back to France? That's
6: right, you never know. We might send a copy or something. But don't say it to anyone, eh? don't say it to anyone.
0: Okay, I won't tell anybody. (laughs) And Brendan, another interesting thing here. Uh, Apparently Hmm. in 1911, the Mona Lisa wasn't as popular as today and the Hmm. theft helped make the painting famous. People actually lined up to see the empty spot at the Louvre where she had been. It's wow. Pleasant.
1: Thus giving rise to conceptual art. There. I, kind I, of cool. I guess so. <laughs> then came the urinal. Duchamp might have been taking notes, yes. <laughs> all right, well no one's stolen all the cocktail recipes off of our website, we hope. No. You can hopefully find them at dinnerpartydownload.org. Painter.
0: So we've made some small talk, had a drink, but the party can't really start without some music to play.
1: And here with suggestions are Elliot and Natalie Bergman, the brother-sister duo known as Wild Bell. Earlier this year, they released their debut record, Isles, to great reviews. This weekend, they'll be playing to a hometown Chicago crowd at Lollapalooza Music Festival. Here they are
5: with the playlist.
7: Hey there, I'm Natalie Bergman.
5: I'm Elliot Bergman, and we're Wild Bell.
7: Here are a couple of tunes that we would like to play at our dinner party.
5: We're going to kick off the night with Aguas de Marco by Stan Getz and Gio Alberto. This just sort of sets the tone, gets the vibe right, lets everyone know we are at a dinner party. (laughs) You know, you just want to make people feel comfortable, make them feel invited.
7: You want to make them feel like they're in Brazil.
5: Right, Brazil would be the best place to eat dinner as far as we're concerned.
7: A stick of stone, it's the end of the road it's the rest of us done, it's
5: a And Astrude
7: Gilberto her voice is beautiful. She's married to Joao Gilberto and actually it was kind of a, a love triangle they had Stan Getz entered the relationship and but you can see they all worked on music together so it was very romantic. <laughs>
5: Dan Getz plays a very lyrical, beautiful saxophone solo. It's very evocative, and it somehow it conjures up longing and, and uh, hunger.
7: <laughs> <laughs> Our second track is by a band called Alleluia Chicken Run. It is a band that was active and playing lots of music in the 70s in Zimbabwe.
5: The guitar patterns are just so lively and exciting. It's got this really great 12-8 pattern going and and this sort of circling guitar riff.
7: This is just the fun, make-you-feel-good, (laughs) put-a-little-boogie-in-your-body tune. Our song Twisted on our record aisles is very influenced by that style of music, that Zimbabwe up-tempo, joyful kind of music. What's the definition of love if it isn't material things?
5: The third track we would play to close out our party would be Della Humphreys Dreamland. It just has this amazing kind of like warm and warbly sound and and you you put it on and you're just immediately transported to Jamaica. And And it just has this kind of uh, longing, Del Humphrey singing about a land so far across the sea where, you know. You get your
7: breakfast (laughs) from the trees, you get your honey from the bees.
5: I think that, you know, like a lot of good music, it's about kind of the here and now and also about a future or a place that you kind of long to be.
7: This will send people off in
5: a real good mood. (laughs) You know, and everyone will be dancing and hugging and kissing. You had to just choose one song what's the best wild bell song to play at a party <laughs> i, I no. think
7: a, a good song to follow up the Della humphrey track would be June. it was just an emotional process because it's about losing our mother and so it brings me into these feelings of happiness and also sorrow and that's kind of what great music does we say-
1: dinner party soundtrack from indie duo Wild Bell. They'll be playing this weekend at Chicago's Lollapalooza Fest. And Brendan, something seems
0: to be in the air, right? Wild Bell is the second musical act on the show to pick a classic Gets Gilberto track lately. Oh, that's right. Macklemore did the same thing.
1: Yeah. So what we were saying is tropical is topical.
0: No, you said that. And I'm not hmm. going to accept responsibility but I did for say it. that. I'm proud of it. We are going to take a break, ladies and gentlemen. Coming up, actor Liev Schreiber talks about casting cars.
8: I hope Mercedes isn't listening.
0: All that and more when
1: The Dinner Party Download returns. Welcome back to The Dinner Party Download, the culture show that helps you win your dinner party. I'm Brendan
0: Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. Coming up, author David Gilbert reads a poignant passage from his celebrated new novel, And Sons, and later, we'll learn about a cheese so good its creator was willing to murder for it. Or was he? It's very mysterious. But first, it is time to solve your etiquette problems.
1: Yes, each week you send us your questions about how to behave. And here to answer them this week is Corey Sika. He is co editor and co founder of the current events and culture website, The All. Wow. The the website's name is short, but to explain it...
0: Yeah, it's difficult.
1: Yeah. And a former editor of Gawker. His writing has also appeared in the New York Times. His debut sort of nonfiction book comes out this week. It's called Very Recent History, an entirely factual account of a year circa AD 2009 <laughs> in a large city. A much longer title. Yeah. Pithy title. And it's about a man named John and his 20-something friends as they work, mate, and try to survive in New York during the recession... But you don't ever call the city New York, do you, Corey? No. Hi, guys. Great dinner
3: party. <laughs> that was a lengthy introduction,
1: yeah. I feel like. Well, a... There was a
0: question at the end of that.
3: Uh, wait, what was I just accused of? <laughs> We're
0: just curious. The uh, the book is clearly set in New York City in 2009, yet you never directly identify the setting as New York City. Why is that?
3: I, I played a ton of games in the book, actually. Uh, we never named the mayor. There's mm-hmm. not a single parentheses in the book. I mm-hmm. had a ton of OCD games I wanted to play with myself, basically, and I inflicted that on readers.
1: Okay.
0: Well, let me add another sort of interesting mind game you play with this here is that you write as though the narrator, the third-person narrator, is explaining today's world to someone who's never seen it. And it, it seems like you're pointing out how bizarre the world we live in is. What what about 2009
3: specifically made you feel like this was the way to approach it? I don't know where you guys were in 2009, perhaps. It was an odd time. It was an odd time. I mean, like, I, I personally was getting evicted from my apartment. You know, when, when the guys who were in the book read the book when it was uh, done, they were like, wow, I don't remember any of this. And I was like, that's probably because you have PTSD. <laughs> like, it was a terrible year. It was not mm. a good time. Well, there was a recession. There was definitely the recession, which uh, was pretty brutal in New York City. And you're a journalist, and so, and the media, the world was rapidly changing. It was rapidly falling off a cliff, I, I certainly, yeah. And then we immediately, like, it's like they say with uh, when you have a baby, you immediately forget about what that was like so you can have another baby. <laughs> if you remembered what childbirth was like, <laughs> You would not do it again. And that was the recession. We were like, wow, that was messed up. Let's forget about it entirely. And some are saying we are laying the groundwork for doing it again. Yeah, shortly, actually. Give a year and a half. There's your sequel,
0: maybe.
1: Uh, well, in this book, you spend a lot of time thinking about the modern condition. So maybe you can help our audience with their dilemmas in I, the modern I world.
3: I love to help people, mostly. All right, we're going to start with one from
0: Annalise in San Antonio, Texas. Annalise writes, if you have a guest, spend the night over at your place... Is one being a cheapskate to make them coffee or breakfast at the house? Or should one at least make the offer to take them out for a bite? And hope they don't take you up on it. Grad school just doesn't give us budgets for these kind of things.
3: This is like a fascinatingly revelatory question. Do not you think? <laughs> How so? In what locality does one say, "Hey, let's go out for breakfast after sleeping together"? I don't. I don't think I've ever experienced that. And I've slept with a lot of people. Well, wait a minute. This, she just says a guest <laughs> spending the night. She doesn't oh, say. Oh, she did say. I, I just, think she's. I think that's what she's hinting
1: that. at, though. Because oh, if they're
3: a house guest, they can get breakfast on their own. Exactly. <laughs> okay. I, I think. I think the answer is sort of about whether you want to have. Them guest with you again, quote <laughs> unquote. <laughs> but I definitely think for the vast majority of us who are addicted to substances, bringing someone coffee before you make them leave your house is a really nice thing to do. All I right. think that's brownie points. Sure,
0: and I but I don't think I'm not quite sure I understand the question. Like cooking somebody a breakfast is a very nice thing to do. The indication here oh, is that one's being
3: cheap. Yeah, no, and I think it's so sweet. I think like if someone maybe breakfast, I'd just stay. <laughs> You'd be a roommate. Yeah.
0: All right. Good, right? <laughs> so Annalise, <laughs> coffee at least and
1: breakfast if you need someone to share your rent. On to a question from Richmond, Virginia. This is Lara. Lara writes, if I'm going to a wedding out of town and sharing a hotel room with a couple, should I be expected to pay for one half or one third of the room? Good
3: God question. Guys, isn't this like the worst? Yeah. Can you like I was like, I, or just drive off a bridge? <laughs> no. They. What should happen in this case is the couple should pay for her to stay in the hotel room with them. <laughs> no, it's true. They should, because yeah. she's lonely. Totally. They should be like, listen, you're going to watch us like wake up together and kiss. That's worth the cost right there. All right. No, but
1: I had this yeah. happen recently at a restaurant.
3: Oh. I split my
1: meal with a couple and it wasn't until afterwards I realized like, wait a second, they ate for two. Yeah.
3: This is the thing that happens a lot too. We go out as a couple with other couples and then maybe a couple single. And literally, we're like, well, here's three credit cards for the three entities, which is yeah. horrible. Yeah. That's gross couple behavior. This is bad, Laura. All
0: right, so either you pay for a third of the room, Laura, or the couple pays for your end. Yeah. But don't let them get away with less. Yeah. Um, here's something from Ziggis in NYC. And Ziggis writes, single space or double space after periods? Perfect for someone who's an editor.
3: So uh, this actually comes up a lot in my work. I get a lot of writers turning in things with double spaces. And I'm like, did you learn on a typewriter? This is an old thing from typewriters, right? Really? I double space. You're a sick old pervert. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Cut. Mostly this is people who learned on typewriters. Did you learn on a typewriter? Maybe I did learn on a typewriter. I think it
1: looks better. What what did the double space do? Why in a typewriter?
3: Yeah, that's a good question. I, I believe it had to do with kerning usually does. <laughs> like what doesn't? Yeah. There's a little visual space there with the font which occurred on typewriters. Well, why doesn't that apply to computers? Uh, because we use other fonts rather than monospace fonts. Oh, right. we could talk about this There's all day. There's some seriousness behind this course, uh, the, uh, Yeah, but so this is a bad habit. Now, it doesn't matter because on the web, if you have a double space, it'll eat that. It won't actually exist.
0: I have noticed that if you publish something online, it turns double spaces into single. All right. Well, yeah, unless
3: you force double spacing, it won't actually happen. So you know what? This is something we worry about a lot for no reason. That's
1: All right, right, there you go.
0: Ziggus, no problem.
3: <laughs> and
1: also we have a new nickname for Rico, double space, which is great. Thanks,
0: you guys. Double space. Corey Sika, thank you for telling our audience how to behave, uh, even if it didn't rub off on Brendan. You
1: guys are the best. I can't even stand it. <laughs> Corey Sika, editor of the culture website The All, his new book is called Very Recent History, an entirely factual account of a year, circa 2009, in a large city. It comes out this week. And
0: folks, if you seek answers to your etiquette questions here in 2013, send them to us and we'll share them with an interesting person nominally qualified to answer them. We promise. Promise. You'll find our contact information at dinnerpartydownload.org.
2: time to eavesdrop.
1: David Gilbert's new novel, And Sons, has become one of the most lauded books of the summer. Esquire magazine calls it a, quote, funny, always elegant, lingering gaze back at a world in which writers are still gods at the very center of culture. Today, we overhear David read a dinner party-worthy excerpt.
9: Hi, this is David Gilbert. I have a new book called And Sons, ampersand, Sons, It's about A.N. Dyer, a J.D. Salinger-like writer whose big book was called Ampersand about 50 years ago. And it's really about his relationship with his three sons. I'm going to read from a section where uh, Andy, his youngest son, discovers that his reclusive dad has an email address. Back in his dorm room, Andy thumbed through 14 books his father had recently sent. While he was embarrassed to have only read Ampersand, he had skimmed the others and for the most part enjoyed the writing. The man on the page seemed so confident, so sure and settled, unlike the man in the flesh who could stare at Andy like he was the only route toward salvation. His dad called him multiple times a week, always on the verge of stumbling into tears. Thank God I have you, he'd conclude. Otherwise, well, what's the point? It was no fun being someone's reason to live. Andy hungered for the a and dire of the blurbs, of the precise prose and biting humanity, Andy flipped the book over and read the familiar quotes. He spotted an internet address. Discovering this seemed as reasonable as discovering a tattoo on his father's neck. Computers were hardly his domain, and the idea of his own website was beyond laughable. The website was an obvious selling tool. As a joke, Andy sent him an email. To aandire@aandire.com. at aandire.com. This can't be you. Last time I mentioned email, you thought I was talking about a boy named Emil. Anyway, hello, whoever you are, your unrelated son, Andy. Later that day, he got a response. To Andrew Dyer, 13, at exeter.edu. The question is, is that really you? To A.N. Dyer at A.N.Dyer.com. Yes, it's me, but this can't be you. Imagine you trying to write an email right on the screen with a ballpoint pen and stuffing the whole computer into a manila envelope. Anyway, still me, and still can't be you. 2. Andrew Dyer, 13, at exeter.edu. No, it's me. I have embraced your friend Emil, if gingerly. I guess at this stage it's nice to know that people still care about my work, that it means something to them. It's been so long since I've been faced with, dare I say it, fans, that I fail to remember the reason I stopped responding in the first place. You very quickly start to despise them. Anyway, how's school? Andy read and reread the email. This was by far the longest piece of correspondence he had ever received from his father. In the writing, he heard the echo of his authorial voice, strong and unsentimental, and, best of all, for Andy alone. It was like a first game of catch. To Dyer at com, You have your fans here, too. People come up and ask me about you, and I don't know what to say, and I just kind of stand there and mumble. I'm glad you have email now. My God, do you text, blog, Facebook, tweet and tumble and flicker, pity pat? I made the last one up. It was exciting and scary to communicate with his father in this way, to recreate himself on the page. And he liked this, Andy. This Andy seemed smart and funny and open. And then this Andy was crushed. to Dyer, 13 at exeter.edu. I need to stop this. I'm not your father. Forgive the reverse Darth Vader. My name is Jeannie Spokes and I work with your father's agent. I am so sorry. I thought you were joking. Not true. I thought if I could fool you, I could fool anyone. I've been in charge of your father's email for the last couple of months, and sometimes, well, I answer a few. I know it's wrong, 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 it's downright fraud, but I'm very respectful, and people seem to appreciate the replies, and I have to say there's a real hunger out there for your dad. I'm sorry, that's no excuse. I really like this job, and I'm only 24, but if you need to tell someone, I understand. BTW, I love your dad's books. You sound sweet. Again, I am so sorry. Forever ashamed, Jeannie Spokes. P.S. I love I aming. Pity padding as well.
0: David Gilbert, reading from his new novel, And Sons. It's in stores now. And you're listening to the Dinner Party download from American Public Media. Or are you?
1: time for Chattering Class. This is the part of the show where an expert schools us in a dinner party-worthy topic. This week, the topic is Paramo de Guzman, a Spanish cheese that at one point in the 1990s was considered the world's greatest. Our expert is journalist Michael Paterniti. He's just written a new book called The Telling Room, a tale of love, betrayal, revenge, and the world's greatest piece of cheese. And Michael, this book, it's part log, part mystery, part meditation on storytelling. I'm curious, what, what do you tell people this book is about?
10: Oh, man. I think of it as a slow food tale gone completely awry. It sort of begins with this little fairy tale beginning. You know, once upon a time there was this cheese that was made in this tiny Spanish village by this one farmer. And it was so good that the people in the village started passing it. On. And the cheese takes on a life of its own in this
1: modern day fairy tale. It becomes very popular in Spain. It becomes world renowned. They start distributing it globally. Yeah. Then the story gets even a little more complicated as as the business is scaled up. Uh, I mean, with the one, there's a couple main characters in the book. One of them, his name is uh,
10: Ambrosio Molinos. Am I pronouncing yes. that correctly? Yep.
1: Yeah. So, who is Ambrosio Molinos for people who haven't read the book?
10: He is a force of nature. He is this hulking, sort of elemental man of the earth. And um, he is also just happens to be one of the greatest storytellers I've ever met. He's just a master of telling stories um, aloud. And it's his stories and your relationship
1: to his stories that make up the heart of this book. Yeah. The subtitle you've chosen is Love, Betrayal, Revenge, and the World's Greatest Piece of Cheese. We've heard a little about the cheese. Tell us about the love and betrayal.
10: I think it starts with Ambrosio's love for this cheese that he made. The whole story that he told about starting to make this cheese again had to do with his father lying in bed near death and uh, Ambrosio pleading to the gods to save his father's life. And, And when his father did recover... Ambrosio sort of made this announcement that he was going to make an offering, and eventually it was to make this cheese. The other part of love here is this love between two best friends, Ambrosio and Julian, who was a childhood friend, um, and who Ambrosio alleged betrayed him as this cheese business got bigger and as they looked to move into a bigger factory, Ambrosio signed some contracts without reading them and lost control of the cheese, basically had his cheese stolen. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, someone moved it and stole it. So. And yeah, it was both at
1: once. And after the betrayal comes the revenge. So, what is the revenge part of this tale?
10: Started a little bit with Ambrosio's plot to you know murder Julian or to eliminate him or to cause him some great pain. And he had in these conversations with me sort of painted this portrait of how that was going to go. That he would take Julian to an abandoned cave. And he would tie him up there. He wouldn't yell. He wouldn't hit him. He wouldn't do anything like that. He would just start by telling him stories of their friendship. But slowly over time, he would, by sharp knife, begin to whittle away at Julian by taking part of a digit or something and then cauterizing the wound. Um, So it's like intense detail. Yeah. And so I think part of the revenge became one of the storyteller's revenge, that when you you tell the story, you— kind of get the ultimate revenge. Every time he killed Julian in one of these scenarios, I felt like he was murdering him. And so he just kept doing it. Um, yeah. It was really compelling and disconcerting and provocative. It just made me think very hard about what really was going on there.
1: So that story of Ambrosio building the cheese empire to honor the gods who spared his father uh, and the story of betrayal, Julian tricking him to give away his business, they show up at the beginning of the book, but by the end of the book, it seems like they aren't really accurate. As a reader, I wasn't too disappointed, but how did you feel? You were someone who got pretty close to Ambrosio.
10: Well, it's, it's funny because my day job as a magazine writer re- requires this constant sort of skepticism. And, and in this case, um, I just wanted to believe it. I just felt like a kid listening to an amazing <laughs> fairy tale or a legend yeah. When you're in that moment inside of a story, it feels timeless, and I didn't want to lose that feeling. And so, for some reason, all journalistic instinct fled my mind, <laughs> and I was just shaking my head. Yeah, this this is right. This is incredible. What he betrayed you?
1: You end up getting wrapped up into the story because you ultimately talked to Julian.
10: Well, I did. I got sucked in. I did. I felt like the George Mitchell trying to negotiate the. Uh, <laughs> yeah. The North Ireland the peace process. Yeah, yeah, peace process. At that point, too, I had some questions of my own about sort of being implicated like that. I, I wasn't sure that that was really the role that I should be playing.
1: Yeah, it had to counter to all your journalistic instincts as well. Yeah,
10: it of... it really did. And yet, at the same time, felt necessary. Felt like the only way they were going to talk to each other was through me, and so I allowed it. But I was just there three weeks ago. And there's a similar stalemate. I don't know if some of these violent impulses are as strong um, Mm -hmm. as they have been through the years. It's kind of the classic Castilian grudge that that may go on and on forever and ever. And now you and your family are part of it. Well done.
1: Enrico, you may have noticed the one part of the book's title we didn't discuss is the quote telling room part.
0: Yeah, where does that come from? The
1: telling room are these little rooms in the Castile region of Spain that sit above cheese caves and they are designed specifically for eating, drinking wine, and telling stories.
0: My god, that sounds like the best place <laughs> in the world.
1: Can I live in a telling room, please? A telling dwelling? That would be great. Yeah, and it rhymes. Folks, coming up we hear a new song from the band Heim. We Taste Conflict Cuisine, and actor Leo Schreiber tells us he's into ensemble acting.
8: Although I do enjoy swinging a bat at a man every now and again. Geez, <laughs> all that and more when the Dinner Party
0: Download continues. Welcome back to The Dinner Party Download, the show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. I'm Rico Galliano.
1: I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. In a few minutes, movie and stage star Leo Schreiber tells us about his new adventures on the small screen. But first, it's time for the main course, where we talk about our favorite part of a dinner party,
0: the food. Yes, and Brendan, uh, a few years back, you may recall, I paid a visit to Conflict Kitchen. I remember, yes. This is a kiosk in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, where they serve food from countries with which the United States is somehow involved in a conflict.
1: They are the only people in America who hope the U.S. starts a war with Mexico.
0: That is right. Wait, no. They
1: want to serve tacos.
0: (laughs) That's not (laughs) true. In fact, the point, of course, is you learn about these countries and maybe think of them in a less abstract way, right? Sure. So they feature the food of a new country every few months. Right now they're serving Cuban food. When I visited on a recent rainy day, their culinary director, Robert Sayer, told me about researching the menu and specifically why they don't serve the classic Cuban sandwich,
11: which is... Ham, Swiss cheese, pickles, mustard. And it's like probably the number one item that Americans associate with Cuban food. But in Cuba, at least in Havana, when we spent you know, about 10 days there, we didn't once see one from any of the street food stands that we saw.
0: Where does that sandwich come from, then?
11: I guess historically it does come from Cuba, but where it lives now is basically in the Florida Cuban expat community. That, like all that. the people that made those sandwiches, basically moved to the United States. There's that, and then there's I mean, there's a matter in Cuba too of you know access to ingredients and basically the economics of being able to afford a sandwich like that. You have to have the, the roast pork, you have to have the bread, you have to have the cheese. For the most part, the meals that we saw your everyday Cuban eating weren't as elaborate as that.
0: So give me an example. What was maybe the most ubiquitous dish there?
11: So this was pretty much I mean one of our main questions when we're interviewing people in the countries we visited, we always ask, you know, what dish is the most emblematic of your country? And it was almost universal the answer in Cuba was congri, rice and beans. Several people mentioned that sometimes when they have a dinner party or get together with friends, they make it together? Somebody will be like, you know, I have the garlic, somebody else will say, well, you know, I've got, you know, a bag of green peppers and something, you know, I'll bring the rice and then they'll sit together and chat while they cook and make this dish all together and then eat it.
0: What, uh say, was the most unusual thing that you ran into that you, maybe you weren't expecting or hadn't heard
11: of? I guess some of the things we weren't quite expecting were we ate in a few of the paladares, which is kind of an in-home private restaurant. And, I mean, some of those have actually, like, pretty sophisticated dishes where, I mean, we ate lobster poached and papaya and vanilla bean. Wow. So, I mean, there are some chefs that are, you know, trying to be creative with what they have access to, the ingredients they have there, and kind of this growing private restaurant scene, whereas previously all the restaurants were state-owned. Now, I noticed that you did not have lobster and vanilla bean, <laughs> etc. What's uh, your favorite item on the menu? Besides the beans and rice, the other emblematic flavor of Cuba is the mojo, marinade and sauce which is bitter orange garlic oregano cumin we use that on a variety of dishes on our menu we use it as the dipping sauce with the tostones which are the fried plantains we use it to marinate the pork which we then slow roast you can marinate anything in it and it ends up tasting pretty delicious (laughs) um is it true that while you were in cuba you actually paid a visit to the north korean embassy yeah so with the nature of our project, we're always aware of the countries that are on our short list of you know future versions that we're going to do and North Korea, of course, is like an obvious choice and when we were in Cuba, we were walking down the street and we just noticed all these posters you know of North Korean troops or you know soldiers keeping a like a lookout over the mountains. there are all these banners of the flag of North Korea and the great leader and so we Come around to the front of the building, and it's of course the, the North Korean embassy. Technically, North Korean soil, and this may be our only chance to, you know, get onto North Korean soil. Yeah, unlike Cuba, <laughs> it's going to be next to impossible to actually go to the real North Korea and check it out. Yeah, I mean we're planning we're going to South Korea soon, actually, to um, meet with some North Korean refugee groups. But North Korea itself is a little more complicated, so. We rang the doorbell, a guy comes out to answer the door wearing flip-flops and jams and like a Bermuda shirt and turns out that he's like, you know, the undersecretary. he's not some guy that works on the ground. He's gone native basically. Yeah, I mean, I think, I don't know, I guess when they, when they leave North Korea, that's probably a pretty plum assignment to leave North Korea and get to hang out in Havana and... I want to imagine him just like kicking back with some sort of cocktail and a pineapple. <laughs> that did not look out of the question. Past the outer wall, there's probably just you know a series of hammocks. But you did you get any recipes from him? So we spoke to him a little bit about food, and what he made like a very clear point of saying was Korean food is Korean food. He's like you know our country has been sep- split into two for you know 60 years, but we've been one culture for thousands of years before that, and that's what we found through our own research as well. It's historically, the cuisine is pretty similar. It's just the only differences are you know in North Korea you're, it's colder and more mountainous, so you're more likely to have things like sweet potato and buckwheat noodles versus rice noodles. Differences due to climate.
0: Alright, so I'll come back for the Korean food, but can I try the Cuban? Yeah, sure. So we're now standing at the uh, takeout window of Conflict Kitchen. What are we going to eat here?
11: We serve basically our larger plates in cajitas, which is basically a little box. And you will see these on the streets of Cuba. We did see these in Havana. Kind of a little take-out brown basically, box. Like just a, yeah, take-out brown box lunch, basically, with you know, all your food right in there. You have the, the black beans and rice, some of the yuca, a comojo. And the yuca is a kind of root vegetable. Yeah, it's a root vegetable. It's also known as cassava, a little sweeter than potato, definitely your very gummy. It's also where they get tapioca starch from. So
0: oh, that's, that's where everybody gets tapioca starch from?
11: Yeah, tapioca is from cassava root. All right.
0: I'm gonna try. I'm actually gonna start with that because it's actually morning time, and this is almost. I could pretend that they're home fries a little bit, <laughs> although they're not. They're not actually fried. It looks like these are boiled. Actually,
11: yeah. The yuca is boiled, and then you cook uh, some onions and the mojo sauce with some oil, and then heat the boiled yuca back up in that sauce.
0: All right. Here we go. Oh, that's delicious. I'm getting the, the bitter orange, which has a kind of... Because it's bitter, it has kind of a almost lemony character to it.
11: Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a much more sour orange than, than we're used to consuming here. So it it's, you know, has that orange flavor to it, but not nearly the sweetness.
0: I really love how tart it is. And, you know, right now that's kind of the flavor profile of the day in American <laughs> cuisine is kind of sour, sweet and sour, and it's, it's really great. I, uh, I wanted to ask you, I, I saw that one of your upcoming menus is going to be Palestinian and Israeli food on one
11: menu, is that right? Yeah, that's one of the conflicts that we're starting to look at for a future menu. Although we may end up doing, one of the ideas we've tossed around too is doing a Palestinian side of the menu and an Israeli side of the menu, but then having them have exactly the same food on them, (laughs) because historically, I mean, like, they are from the same region, they eat many of the same food items. Man,
0: so this menu goes, hopefully so goes the world. And Brendan, it's interesting. If you get an individual item from Conflict Kitchen, mm-hmm. it comes in this wrapper printed with all these interviews with Cubans and with Cuban immigrants. So, so interesting. Yeah, it's kind of like when you read the back of a cereal box at breakfast if the box had a newspaper printed on it.
1: Oh yeah. there you go. Cereal boxes could be a new market for USA Today. I <laughs> maybe it's a new like the honey nut news. Our guest of honor this week is actor Liev Schreiber. He got his start in popular indie films like The Day Trippers and Big Night. He then went on to star in some big Hollywood films like the Scream Horror Trilogy and X-Men Origins Wolverine. He's also a highly regarded stage actor. Currently, he stars in Showtime's new hit drama Ray Donovan, where he plays the title character, a South Boston native who lives in L.A. and works as a fixer for a high-end law firm. And although he solves the problems of the rich and famous, he has problems of his own, not least of which is his father's early release from prison. Here's a clip from the show. In it, Ray's father, played by John Voigt, has just arrived in Los Angeles and decides to visit Ray and his brothers. Well, this is great. This is great. All my boys are together. Everyone's great.
8: Everyone's great, Mick. Really? Bridget's dead. Terry's shaking like a leaf. And Bunchy can't stay sober more than a month. That's your legacy, Mick.
6: Hey.
8: Hollywood big shot.
1: I want to date Cheetah Rivera, Rita Moreno, or
8: Diane Carroll. Claudette, that don't take me back. Can you
1: hook me up? And, Liev, this show has two major storylines. In one, your character zooms around L.A. and helps the rich and famous make their problems disappear. And in the other storyline, there's Ray's turbulent family life. From an acting standpoint, which one of those stories do you prefer? Which is more fun to play?
8: The family stuff is a lot more fun. Yeah? But it's not very interesting why it's fun. <laughs> it's fun because I like those actors. Oh, okay. And I like working with those actors. Okay. When you're doing the fixer stuff, you're working with people who are on for a day or two. Or, But the real heart of the thing for me is the ensemble, is, is this in really, really stellar group of actors. And they play my family, so I only get to work with them in the family scenes. Although I do enjoy swinging a bat at a stuntman every now and again. That's, and a, you
1: get to drive a really vicious-looking Mercedes. I hate that car. You do? I really hate that what, car. Do you think it's not the right car pairing for Ray? I just think that's that
8: just the ridiculous little car. It's too small. I hope Mercedes isn't listening because I'm sure somebody made some sort of deal with them to get <laughs> yeah. that car on oh, the show. Yeah.
1: So I heard you talking about Ray Donovan on <clears throat> another public radio show, yeah. Fresh Air.
8: Mm. used to work there, actually. Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. What Terry? happened?
1: Well, I wanted to be Terry.
8: Oh, yeah. yeah. She Terry so, doesn't take kindly to uh, that.
1: Well, and also, you know, she's not going anywhere. Yeah. She has her compatriot Dave Davies to help her. And, in fact, you were talking to him about your show And specifically, you were telling him what it's like being on a serial television show. This is the first series you've starred in. And you said, quote, the interesting thing about doing serial television is that the character is growing separate from you. Yeah. And as an actor, you get to observe that. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about that a little more? Well,
8: you know, I never wanted to do a television show. And... I guess when I first got into acting, to be honest, I was cruising. I was like, wow, this is really easy, and mm. they pay you, and it's kind <laughs> of a great lifestyle. And the best part was that there was such variety that you got to do something different all the time. Yeah. And then, you know, if you're lucky enough to get into the movie business, they really pay you. Yeah. And they take you places, like places you probably would never get a chance to go. And they teach you things like how to play hockey or you know, uh, how to speak another language. It's like and
1: summer camp. they are getting paid fantastic. a lot of money. Yeah,
8: And I thought, wow, this really is the life for me because I'm someone who's always been drawn to change, constant change. And so for that reason, I thought, I'm never going to do a television show because I couldn't imagine doing the same thing over and over again. What I discovered once I started doing a couple of episodes was this thing that you're not doing the same thing all of the time. And... What's fascinating about it from an acting perspective is that the thing grows and changes separately from you. For instance, there are a lot of other people collaborating on this thing. Yeah. Writers, directors, editors, other actors. And the character is developing in a way that you can almost watch it grow hmm. And then sort of meet it at this next new place and take it to another. It's like you're all contributing something to it, but no one's really in control of it. And that's very exciting. No one person is in control of it. That's that's an exciting way to work.
1: We have two standard questions we ask Mm -hmm. on our show. And the first question is, what question are you tired of being asked in interviews? That one. Really? I'm so sick what?
8: of being asked what, what? question no way. am I tired of being asked in an interview. I've no, you've been asked this question? really? They ask me a lot the same question. You know, it's questions question that I'm kind of tired of. I'm kind of tired of the question about what's the difference between theater and film. Yeah. That one's annoying. That's why I didn't ask it. Yeah.
1: I know the answer. Do you want to ask you me? Go, what's the oh, difference between theater and film? It. Well, theater is an actor's medium. Uh-huh. With theater, the actors in control of the performance. Uh-huh. But with movies, the director and the editor ultimately control what's on screen.
8: Who told you that?
1: That was uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Joseph- <laughs>
8: <laughs> I think I've given that answer. Yeah. I well, I mean, it's, it seems true. Yeah. It's not the best answer, but no. I've given that answer.
1: Well, we have another question, a request, actually. Yeah. Tell us something we don't know. It can either be a personal fact about you or an interesting piece of trivia.
8: Well my senior thesis, basically, at Hampshire College, undergraduate, was on the uh, subject of canid vocalizations, which is a fancy way of saying dog barking. (laughs) (laughs) And um, basically, I had to go out in different costumes in front of a kennel of of dogs. Are you being, this
1: is happening? This is serious, I did
8: this. (laughs) I went, I had a clown costume, I Uh went in a dress, I went dressed all in black. I went dressed normally. This
1: does sound like Hampshire College.
8: Yeah, and we were trying <laughs> to see the frequency of the barks and what it meant, and yeah. as they got to know me, how they would change and which breeds would change more. There were more feral dogs, and wow. there were there were these dogs called F-12 hybrids. And that's this. here's the interesting thing. My senior project was not that interesting. I'll admit that now. Mm. Uh, two interesting facts. One is I wanted to be an animal behaviorist. Yeah. And two... My teacher developed this dog that was called, I think, an F-12 hybrid. All right. What's so fascinating, if you know anything about working dogs, cattle dogs, there are two kinds of dogs. There's a UCD and a UPD. Okay. One's a conducting dog and one's a protecting dog. All right. Conducting dogs are like border collies, which are essentially hunting the sheep. They're There's like shepherds. Eye behavior. stalk behavior. In the, and... And that's basically what conducting dogs are. Protecting dogs are big dogs like Maremmas and sheep dogs that actually protect the animals as if they're part of the herd. Gotcha. And Ray's project was to develop a hybrid that could do both. This is amazing. And would revolutionize the cattle industry. This is the F-12. The F-12 hybrid.
1: <laughs> I have one last question. Mm-hmm. Preparing for this interview, I found out you had a son named Kai. Uh-huh. And so my our sister program is Marketplace. Kai Rizdahl. Kai Rizdahl, so Rizdahl right,
8: Yeah, a, I know Kai Rizdahl.
1: Any? An, all right. I, mean, I don't know Kai yeah, Rizdahl, yeah, but, but
8: I know I listen to Kai Rizdahl. So,
1: and did did that inspire the name? Or Absolutely no? not. Okay. No. Because right. I was going to say Brendan, not a bad name. If you Brendan's a nice name. Yeah, if you have another kid, you might want to. It's better a nice than thing.
8: Terry. I wouldn't name my kid Brendan, <laughs> but it's nice. To, <laughs> it's a beautiful name.
1: Enrico, as Liev mentioned at the beginning of that interview, Ray Donovan is filled with great actors. Of course, yeah. Including John Voight, who plays his father, and Dash Myhawk and Eddie Marson, who play his brothers. Sure, Eddie Marson is the great British character actor. Exactly. Also, a little bit of news, Liev has a new daughter, and her name is Robert Siegel. <laughs> <laughs>
0: That's not true, I'm afraid. It's not true. It's not true. All right, that is the Dinner Party Download for this week. Next week, we talked to Lisa Kudrow about her new show Web Therapy.
1: Till then, keep up with us on Twitter. We are Dinner Party D N L D. Jackson Musker is assistant producer of the Dinner Party Download. Our interns are James Dallahousie, Davy Kim, and Brittany Martin. Engineering assistance came from Jeff Peters. Peter Clowney
0: is our executive producer. And now, before we leave you, it's time for One for the Road, a song to listen to on your way to or returning from this week's dinner parties.
1: And yet another group of musical siblings infiltrates the show this week. Jeez. It's true, Rico. You can check the birth certificates. SD, Danielle, and Alana Haim comprise the L.A. band called Heim. Their debut full-length album comes out later this year. This week, they released the first single. It's called The Wire. Bon appétit
4: you know i'm bad at communication it's the hardest
5: thing for me to do and it's it it's the most important part that relationships will go through and i give it all away just so i could say that well, i know i know i know i know that you're gonna be okay anyway you know there's no right or reason for the way it turned out to be i didn't go and try to change my mind not intentionally I know it's hard to hear me say it But I can't bet a stay And I just know, I know, I know, I know That you're gonna be okay anyway oh.
1: That's the Dinner Party Download. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. And I'm Rico Francis Noonan. What are you doing?
0: Shh, everyone's doing it.